Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. I'm going to start by summarizing the tradition as I see it. And I say tradition because we're stepping a little bit past Lacan into a tradition that I believe extends from Jacques Lacan to Jacques-Alain Miller to Bruce Fink. I'll always try and clue you in when I start stepping beyond this text, beyond Lacan and into some of these other figures. But I want to start with a kind of overarching summary of what we've got here. It's come up before, it comes up at the end of these lectures because there are so many clinicians in the mix with us. What is the goal of psychoanalysis? The goal of psychoanalysis in this tradition that extends from Lacan to Miller to Fink is fundamentally to separate from the big other and to be able to live a life without all the inhibitions, and influences of normative society and sexuality. That's what's up. How to separate from all of the normative structures of society and sexuality and how to live a life uninhibited by these things. Doesn't mean they go away. It means you are no longer inhibited by them. Unfortunately, most of what counts for the end of analysis is an excavation and a coming to terms with one's unconscious desire. In the tradition I am describing now, that is not fucking enough. It is not enough to excavate your desire. People often say about Seminar 11, four fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis. The unconscious repetition, transference, and, and, and the drive. Lacan, you spent all these years talking about desire, desire this, desire that. How is the fourth concept not desire? Because that is not where analysis ends. It is beyond desire that analytic experience finds its horizon. Here's why just digging into and coming to terms with your unconscious desire is not enough. Here's why it's not enough to simply work through desire. Desire is pegged on and fundamentally subservient to the law. What the law prohibits, desire seeks. And the type of enjoyment Rejuissance, accessible to desire, is usually there at the level of transgression. I want to fuck you in the walk-in freezer because we're not allowed to do that at the restaurant. That's why it's the best sex either of us has ever had. Cold as fuck, but boy, was it worth it. Anybody could have walked in at any moment. We could have gotten caught in there and died. We could have lost our jobs. Here you see enjoyment 
accessible via desire, strictly by transgressing the law. And what that means is that if you can only enjoy by breaking the rules, you can only enjoy when there are rules. Your sense of enjoyment remains beholden to the law. The other way that jouissance pops up typically in the field of desire is at the level of symptomatic expression. We enjoy our symptoms. This is an old topic in post-Lacanian thought, but it's one that's always worth coming back to. The neurotic experiences enjoyment at the level of their symptoms. So the the uh, the anal obsessive has been working all day to have this amazing dinner party and, and then everybody leaves um, and they say, okay, got to get to these dishes now. Can't sleep till the dishes are done. Then the dishes are done and they kick their feet off, legs off, their shoes off and put their legs and their feet and their shoes up and they do all the shit that you do when you sit down and they say, ooh-wee, mama's tired after that. That ooh-wee. Yeah, it feels good to sit down, but look at all the pain and suffering you had to go through in order to get to that ah, moment. It's in the field of anger, rage, exhaustion, pain. You feel good about the workout. You enjoy the workout because it hurts. That's not the kind of jouissance we're talking about beyond desire. It's strictly within the field of desire. And here's the thing. That type of enjoyment in this tradition from Lacan to Fink is unsatisfying. Desire is a dead end. Analysis that stops at desire is failed analysis. We're going to talk about this in this lecture. What is silenced? and suppressed by desire is the drive. Desire guards against the drive. And it is helped by the fundamental fantasy that props up desire, which we're also going to talk about. Let me be more precise. Desire is a defense against satisfaction, against drive satisfaction. To liberate the drive from desire, from the law, from the big other, is to shift from other people's demands as we imagine them and other people's desires as they find us in the symbolic, and instead to move on to the partial objects that bring us real satisfaction. This is a sense of objea, the object cause of our desire, that is not pegged to a demanding other fantasized by us, but truly experienced as a place of loss, as a place of lack. And not lack to be filled, and not lack to be held. The drive's experience with objea is different from desire's pursuit of objea. The drive, unlike desire, appeals to no one. 
there is no big other to grant it guidance or to give it permission. Drive satisfaction, the type of jouissance experience at the level of the drive, don't need no fucking permission. It doesn't mean it's hedonistic, doesn't mean it breaks all the damn rules. It just means that it operates unimpeded by these rules. Now we can sketch this out in summarizing some of Bruce Fink's work, which I think is profoundly good on this point. We're really talking about the last chapters of his clinical introduction to Lacanian psychoanalysis. And I wanna suggest that the moves you're hearing me describe really line up nicely with some of the summative work that Bruce offers at the end of this book. So to that end, I wanna share my screen, um, not in order to, to show you uh, the image that we're going to be working with, this interior eight, but in order to give us a, a way to kind of uh, start mapping some of this stuff. Um, give me just one second. All right, you all should now see a black screen in front of you. Let's be cursory here. One of the fundamental and original processes that Lacan describes in the formation of a subject is alienation. We've talked a lot about it. Beyond alienation is this process known as separation. There's a lot about this in the latter half of seminar 11. We've also talked about this. Then there is this third place, this third move that Bruce building on these final words in seminar 11, among a few other spots in Lacan calls traversing of fantasy, the traversing of the fundamental fantasy. We can just call it traversing of fantasy. Each of these is gonna comport with a specific phase. When alienation begins, and here think castration, think the child's entrance into language, the world of the child is ruled by the big other's demand. Big A and their demands. And these demands rule the subject. It's all about living life on somebody else's terms. The parent says no more nursing. Boom, the breast is gone. The parent says poop here, not there. Boom. Your scatological freedom, gone. A series of demands imposed on the emerging subject. In the phase known as separation, what you see is the dominance, not of the other's demand, but of their desire. Here, the split subject, which is going to be the subject of the drive, is dominated by what it thinks everybody else wants. 
When the fundamental fantasy is traversed, demand and desire are left in the dust. And what we see then is the subject of the drive emerging atop something else, something else that is now made to serve it. Little a, the object caused not of someone else's desire, but of yours. Now I'm being brief and cursory here because I wanna have this out in broad strokes, but also because you can check this out in Bruce's book at the end of the clinical intro. He's got all this mapped out, it's terrific. And he talks you through it. Not surprisingly, this process where you envision the other as demanding and always having answers and always being able to tell you what to do is an imaginary one. Desire, as we know, is driven by the symbolic. It's the cut of the signifier that opens up the gap in which something beyond demand, or more precisely, that part of demand that remains after need has been met, can emerge. We know that as desire. It's fundamentally an effect of the symbolic order. Not surprisingly, you know where I'm going with this. The type of satisfaction that is experienced by the traversing of the fundamental fantasy and the push away from demand and desire and into drive is real. And remember, the reality that we're talking about here this real element. In seminar 11, Lacan makes this really wild move, which we've been discussing in previous lectures, to say that even before the child is born, they are shoved into the bipolarities of sex. And what that results in is what Lacan calls a real lack, in which pure, undivided, unrestrained life is removed. And now life is subjective, subjected to the impositions of sexuality, where you have on the one hand, sexuality subservient into reproduction, and at the same time, sexuality also allowing for enjoyment. But these bipolarities of sex, not just boy and girl, but also reproduction and enjoyment, are a splintering of the vitalism that the child is born with. And those of you that read Deleuze and Guattari, you're going to be like, yeah, bro, we know this. We all know this, man. This is what we're trying to get to. And you're not wrong. Um, you might just be annoying. Let's talk about some examples of this. At the level of alienation, where the demand of the big other seems to dominate your life, this is what happens in analysis. When the patient shows up and asks the analyst to tell them what to do. Tell me what's wrong with me. I know you know all the answers. How am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to do? You're the doctor, fix me. At the level of demand, the analyst is presumed to be what Lacan calls the subject supposed to know. You're supposed to have all the answers. Fix me up. 
In other words, this is a big other that is whole, omniscient, perhaps even omnipotent, and so in touch with everything and all the answers that they could simply issue a demand. Here's what you need to do. Here's what's going to fix you. It's imaginary. The subject's supposed to know is an imaginary projection. Don't forget, for Lacan, projection is an imaginary phenomenon. Introjection is a symbolic one. But the projective enterprise of assuming that somebody else knows is an imaginary exercise. At the level of the symbolic, this could be the stage in analysis where the analyst refuses to issue demands, refuses to tell the analyzand what to do, how to feel, and so forth, and instead invites the analyzand to wonder about the analyst's desire. Well, if you're not going to tell me what to do, and you don't seem to want to talk about dreams, what am I supposed to be doing here? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Notice how the structure is now no longer tell me what to do, but tell me what you want from me. Unfortunately, and remember, I'm summarizing a tradition that I just study from afar. I'm not that kind of doctor. Unfortunately, it would seem that many psychoanalyses end there with an opportunity for the analyzand to wrestle with the enigmatic nature of the analyst's desire, and if they're lucky, ultimately identify with it. Sounds like a newfangled version of ego psychology. It is certainly not what Lacan has in mind. The analyzand is not to model their desire on that of the analyst in order to be cured. They can't tell you what to do, nor are they your role model for life. That's not the goal here. There's something else. The goal is this third step of traversing those fantasies of an all-knowing, whole, big, larger-than-life other that knows what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to want. Here, the analyst would play the part of a cause of desire. And they would never seem to be where the analyzand expects them to be. Their desire would not be a subject to identification, but instead would remain unidentifiable. Not just enigmatic, but fucking impossible. Such that the analyzand cannot in any way peg their desire on that of the analyst. In these three very oversimplified stages of analysis, you would see someone, if it went well, achieving a very simple goal. Their desire would stop inhibiting their satisfaction. You see, desire is always caught up in what others are doing. 
and what we imagine them to be wanting. That's the reason why we can't get no satisfaction because it's always pegged on somebody else. And guess what? They're just as miserable as you are. The goal here is to turn away from desire and set something else loose, something that's just yours. Perhaps even if you're Heideggerian, your own most potentiality. Again, this doesn't mean that you operate in a world without constraints. When the drive is turned loose, it doesn't mean that you ignore society. You're not an anarchist necessarily to do this. It doesn't mean you shed your ego. It doesn't mean that your super ego hangs itself. It doesn't mean that the big other disappears. It's just that jouissance, enjoyment, is now something that's permitted. Not something that you achieve on the sidelines in moments of transgression and disgust and accident, but instead something that you are just free to go for. Desire always operates in relation to heterogenital sexuality. That's the start of this process for Lacan and all the other morphings, developmental and otherwise, take their lead from this heterogenital sexuality, these bipolarities of sex that the subject is dropped into as soon as they're dropped into the world, as Augustine put it, between piss and shit. Where enjoyment can be understood as a transgression of reproduction. Think about that. Think about that in light of current contemporary debates about abortion, about birth control. Enjoyment is here figured as a transgression of the human body's reproductive capacity. How dare you stop your ability to reproduce in order to enjoy? How dare you subordinate the reproductive function, the finality of sex? biological, that is, with your own enjoyment. How dare you have sex without reproducing? You can hear these logics being played out today. Drive is something different. It gets back in touch with something that Freud called a kind of polymorphous perversion, not because it is in the clinical structure of perversion, but because it seems a little different and it's a little everywhere at once. Wherever there's a little a that provides enjoyment, it is now accessible. Now we're operating at some pretty high nosebleed levels here. We're going to come down to concrete details here in a minute. A couple things to note. If you wanted to take this tradition that we're working with and you wanted to move it back from Fink to Miller to Lacan, you could go back to Freud with this. And Fink even makes this suggestion as well. Again, this isn't me. I'm just summarizing for you where this tradition is as I see it. Freud has this split between representation and affect, idea and affect sometimes as it's put. Lacan has this very famous split between signification and jouissance. Where the symbolic intervenes, jouissance is an off limits effect structure. Same with the real. Perhaps what we are talking about here is a shift from the desiring subject dealing with 
the unconscious effects of signification and representation over to an enjoying subject, not a desiring subject, but an enjoying subject who is fueled by affective intensities, not representations, ideational or otherwise, fueled by jouissance, not signification. In other words, maybe this is a through line from Freud to Lacan to Miller to Fink. I wanna offer that as another possible way of accounting for this. Now, at the end of these lectures, when the recordings go off, uh, we all know what happens. The clinicians in the room go ham. They get their questions. And one of the things they wanna know is, okay, but how do I do this in clinical practice? What does this actually look like? Allow me to quote, not quote, but to summarize what I hear other practicing Lacanians saying. In this case, Bruce Fink. How do you do this stuff? First, if you're an analyst and you wanna move your analyzand in this direction, focus less on what the analyzand says they want and focus more on moments of affective intensity and expressions of satisfaction in their speech. It's not about what they say they want. It's about the points in their discourse where they get a little riled up. Strange feelings, great sadness, painful experiences. That's the stuff to highlight. To punctuate, in other words, desirous speech and emphasize moments of excitement, turn-ons, even disgust in the analyzand's discourse. But here's the hook without seeming disapproving of that stuff. I don't know how to do this, but this is how I think it's done. You wouldn't let these intense experiences of affect be explained away. Instead, you would give them a place in the subject. The job of the analyst is to establish a place in the subject where these affective intensities can find a home. All too often, and I think this is one of the most brilliant insights at the end of Fink's book, his clinical introduction to Lacanian psychoanalysis. All too often, these moments of affective intensity and strong emotion and overwhelming sadness and strange feelings, they get written off as anxiety. They get put into this pool of generalized anxiety. It's a spectrum between general and acute and dismissed. But what I want to suggest tonight as we get into it is that if desire is a defense against anxiety, which is one of the main insights of seminar 10, anxiety can be a defense against enjoyment. And this is one of the great insights of Seminar 11 and this tradition that I'm summarizing here. You might even recall the table that we worked with in Seminar, in our lectures on Seminar 10. You know the table I'm talking about? where you've got jouissance, 
anxiety, and desire. And we talked about reading the circuit that gets worked out here as a procedure that would pass through desire, anxiety, in order to arrive at a kind of jouissance. Desire defends against anxiety, but anxiety is a hurdle to enjoyment. And I would even say desire and anxiety both defend against drive satisfaction, against enjoyment as we're describing it here. We're not going to rehearse this table. We just don't have time. But you can go back and check out the seminar 10 lectures. Holler at me if you're interested and, and we'll figure it out. But all that work is done in there. I want to just note that that's kind of what we're working up here with this theory of anxiety as a barrier to jouissance, as this bucket category where something that should have found a place in the subject as part of them and a very meaningful part of them gets put in the bucket of anxiety and slopped out the window to land in the street. Now, the title of the thing that we do here is Lectures on Lacan. It is not Lectures on Fink. It is not Lectures on Freud. What we're doing here is called Lectures on Lacan. So let's talk about some Lacan here. Now, it's interesting to me that so much theory on the drive emerges out of seminar 11. When if you just crack Ikri, some of the best stuff on the drive is there, including a little bitty essay that Lacan wrote on the drive. This thing is fire. When desire verges on the drive, when we as desiring subjects find ourselves on the verge of becoming an enjoying subject, listen to how Lacan describes this. As we verge on desire, we find a misadventure of desire at the hedges of jouissance, he says, watched out for by an evil god. In the English translation of a decree, this is page 724. What we're talking about here is somehow a way around this dilemma. The misadventure of desire at the hedges of jouissance, watched out for by an evil god. There's a lot to be said about this misadventure. And if you'll notice even the sentence before, that's where we get our lizard the lizard who jettisons its tail in a moment of distress. Page 724, you can check it out. The lizard image is fabulous. See what I'm saying? Like in our last lecture series, we had the praying mantis. One of you has even got a praying mantis tattoo on the side of their knee of all places as a result of this. Y'all are crazy. Can't believe you did shit like that. There's a whole meme out there. It's about like Lacanian tattoos. You know what the worst is? You know what my favorite part about those tattoos? And this just shows you that I truly am a sadistic motherfucker. I love it when the tattoo artist gets the diagram wrong. 
Now, I don't know if somebody just getting created, like, you know what? I really don't think there should be the split subject there at all. It should actually be the ego that goes there. Maybe it's somebody's like brilliant idea to come up with something new, but all too often I feel really awful, but also <laughs> kind of delighted to see that somebody committed to ink on their body, um, a diagram that, um, that the artist got wrong and perhaps that the subject also got wrong as well. Um, that said, I do have some great Lacanian tattoo ideas from seminar 20. Oh shit, there's so much good shit in there. 23 is really where it's at though. If you want some tattoo ideas, you're gonna look like a Gaelic fool though. If you go with the seminar 23 tattoo ideas, um, there are good ways to do this is what I'm saying. And there are so many bad ones. But here's where we are. It's easy to talk about the lizard. It's easy to talk about the hedges of jouissance. Here's my question. Who the fuck is this evil God? Who is the evil God that watches out for desire whenever it verges on jouissance? The evil God is anxiety. Anxiety is the evil God that watches carefully, wickedly, severely for any misadventure of desire, where desire becomes a little too intense, where pleasure starts getting up into that displeasure category, which by the way, if you get off on displeasure, how is that really different from the transgressive theory of jouissance we're just working with? So it's also limiting to read jouissance simply as the outer limits of pleasure. Jouissance is like extreme pleasure, people like to say. It's pleasure tinged with pain, the way an orgasm sometimes kind of aches or hurts or throws your body into a contortion. That's all good and well, but be very careful of the parallels that that suggests. It suggests that enjoyment would be simply something beyond the pleasure principle. But if your enjoyment is staked on the traversing of the pleasure principle, how is that any different from a desire that always moves in accordance, even if against the law? It is not. And in fact, there's some great stuff in seminar 11 where Lacan talks about the way that displeasure as an experience really just shows that we are enjoying our symptoms. I'll call your attention to it really quick because it is a, it is a fiery passage and maybe one of the best ones that, um, that opens up here in the book. It's the first point in the book where we get a really terrific um, discussion of the real. Pages 166 to 167. 166, first full paragraph, midway through. They satisfy something that no doubt runs counter to that with which they might be satisfied, or rather, perhaps they give satisfaction to something. They are not content with their state, but all the same, being in a state that gives so little content, they are content. The whole question boils down to the following. What is contented here? I'll let you read about this. Displeasure, the outer limits of pleasure, that does not bring us to drive satisfaction. That's not the kind of jouissance we're trying to carve out here. 
that type of jouissance mirrors the transgressive theory of jouissance that we were just working with, which remains beholden to desire, which remains beholden to the law, which remains beholden to the big other, and does not include a traversing of fantasy. Anxiety helps out. Anxiety steps in anytime desire gets to something more extreme and says, oh my God, it's just anxiety. Oh, it's just my anxiety that just came over. <clears throat> this is one great way to make that inversion in the middle sections of being in time when Heidegger is talking about anxiety and the experience of everyday speech after a moment of anxiety. He talks about the subject who has a moment of anxiety and someone comes up and says, oh my God, are you okay? You just seemed way, way off. And the subject responds by saying, oh, it was nothing. Don't worry, it was nothing, it was no big deal. You can see this from Seinfeld to Monty Python. There are loads of examples of this type of expression. This autoglich rede, this everyday discourse, verges on Gerede in Heidegger. But what it does is it explains away the profound moment of anxiety. And Heidegger's response is, you damn straight. What you just encountered was indeed nothing. The truth could not be better put. You're right. It was nothing that you just bumped into. This is a great model and a parallel between psychoanalytic clinical practice and Heideggerian hermeneutic phenomenology. In everyday utterances and slip-ups, even and especially when you think you're not saying anything, is when the most profound truths about who and what you are pop up. Heidegger knew that. Lacan knew it. And if Freud had known more about language and language theory, he would have known it too. What I want to get at is this evil God. Because I think that part of what it means to get to the drive, to traverse the fundamental fantasy, to get past desire, is to also oftentimes pass through anxiety. Anxiety as an explainer, as a concept that gets tacked onto any sort of effective intensity. Anytime desire starts to break down, read that passage on 724. When the tail of the lizard falls off in a moment of distress, anxiety is there to explain it. And I would offer this, to explain it away. The goal of analysis in the tradition I'm talking about here is not to explain away those moments, but to find a place for them, to help the analyzer find a place for them. Anxiety is always there. Lurking, waiting, watching for desire when it approaches its limit, this hedge of jouissance, this limit of the desiring subject, beyond which there is only the real. And if the real is pursued by way of the drive, this lamella known as libido, this pure life, the job of the drive is to recover and restore what we as sexualized beings have always experienced as a real lack. 
there's a diagram at the end of this book. It's an interior eight, number eight, where the top part has been folded down. You can see it popping up first on page 156. You can see it recurring on page 271. Now, if you subscribe to our Substack newsletter, this free thing that I drop into your inboxes every now and again, um, you can see why I'm so intrigued about this today, here, August 24th. The Interior Eight. It's no wonder that Lacan ends Seminar 11, not just on the drive, but with this diagram of the Interior Eight. Because what this interior eight shows, if you allow some movement into the thing, is how we get from demand to desire to the drive. You saw how Fink put it out with those tables, alienation, separation, traversing of the fantasy. Now I want to show you how Lacan does this. <clears throat> Let's start on page 269. <clears throat> I would say it's probably the, first of all, did you crack up when you read the top of 269 where he's talking about toilet paper? Jesse, that one's for you. It's about lavatory paper, he says on 269, top of the page. I haven't read it, I'm sorry. Don't trip, I'm just calling your attention to it. <clears throat> it's pretty solid. The paragraph for us, <clears throat> that brings us back to our work, which is on Lacan, and work that might just reveal something new in this tradition, begins on page 269. The paragraph, what happens when the subject begins to speak to the analyst? Who wants to turn on their mic and make their way into this by reading starting at that paragraph on 269. Just turn it on and go for it if you have the text in front of you. What happens when the subject begins to speak to the analyst? To the analyst, that is to say, to the subject who is supposed to know, but of whom is certain that he is still knows nothing. It is to him that is offered something that is will first necessarily take the form of the demand. Everyone knows it is this that is that has oriented all thinking and on analysis in the direction of rejection of the fundamental function of frustration. Frustration. But what does the, the subject demand? This is the whole question. For the subject knows very well that whatever he appetites may whatever his appetites may be whatever his needs may be none of them will find satisfaction in the analyst and that the most he can expect of it is to organize his menu ah oh, that's so great the menu metaphor is just fascinating here and you can see where he goes from here thank you um, for that the first word here for our purposes is demand and so i've got my screen shared here i'm now going to precariously take my water glass put it on my pen tab and draw, oh, apparently not because my pen tab doesn't like this, but I really wanna draw a nice circle for y'all. 
Okay, that just isn't gonna work either. We're gonna have to freehand this a bit. <clears throat> I wanna start charting out this interior eight for us. <clears throat> what we have here is a circle that runs about like this and then dips down. Demand is out here. And I would suggest that the trajectory of this interior eight looks about like this. What's missing from this diagram I would like to suggest is the sense of movement. The way that we read, for instance, the graph of desire, if you've taken seminars with me on this, is always at the level of a trail map. It's a road map. You can move through it. And Lacan has added arrows to the graph of desire. There are arrows in there to show you the flow and show you what leads to what and how this works. What's missing from this interior aid are some arrows here. The first thing that pops up in analysis, Bruce is right, is demand. The subject's supposed to know, tell me what it is I want. Which is why after this paragraph on 269, we get the narrative. Who wants to read this one? In the fable I read when I was a child. Wait, Lacan was a child? In the fable I read when I was a child, in these early forms of script cartoon, the poor beggar at the restaurant door feasts himself on the smell of the roasting meat. On this occasion, the smell is the menu, that is to say, signifiers, since we are concerned with speech only. Well, this there is this compl complication, and this is my fable that the menu is written in Chinese. So the first step is to order a transla translation from the patron. She translates imperial pate, spring rolls, et cetera, et cetera. It may well be if it is, if it is the first time that you've come to a Chinese restaurant that the translation does not tell you much more than the original. And in the end you say to the patron, recommend something. This means you should know what I desire in all of this. Ah, now we're getting to it. You should know what I want. <clears throat> this here is the demand of the other. Tell me what it is I want. You know it. Tell me what I want. But is so paradoxical a situation supposed in the final resort to end there? At this point, when you abdicate your choice to some divination of the patron whose importance you have exaggerated out of all proportion, would it not be more appropriate if you felt like it and if the opportunity presented itself to tickle her tits a little bit? For one goes to a Chinese restaurant not only to eat, but to eat in the dimensions of the exotic. So here Lacan is getting a little fantastical, but the important point is this. You've abdicated your choice 
to some divination of the analyst whose importance you have exaggerated out of all proportion. This reminds me of one of the discussions we had after our lectures where one of you who is um, a psychoanalyst said that one of the things you're very clear with your patients is your own foibles and your own limitations and your own constraints and the fact that you're human too and that you're not this divine patron who can just look at somebody and be like, I'm gonna cook something special for you. I know what you want. I bring you not the menu, but the food. Divination is an important word here, not just in the verb form, but in the adjectival form as well. This is the treatment of the other as though they're some kind of fucking God. They are a divine being, omniscient, omnipotent, can read your mind and tell you what it is you need, what ails you and what you need. This is not the version of the analyst that Lacan would leave his audience with at the end of seminar 11. But if that's what you want out of an analyst, you might as well ask if you can tickle her tits a little bit too in the process. It's a fascinating and totally bizarre turn in this discussion. If my fable means anything, Lacan says at the top of 270, it is in as much as elementary desire has another meaning than alimentation. It is here, the support and symbol of the sexual dimension, which is the only one to be rejected by the psyche. Now that's interesting. The drive in its relation to the part object is subjacent here. Now here's why this is important. Subjacent doesn't mean beside, it's not adjacent. Subjacent means underneath, it means beneath. Whatever the fuck it is that we're doing when we assume the analyst has these divine capacities and titties to tickle, <clears throat> the drive is occurring underneath, beneath, subjacent to this experience. And that may be why the interior eight lends itself so well here, because what you see paralleling the curve of demand is this curve of desire that will ultimately deliver us to the drive. <clears throat> Let's see if we can earn it. Who wants to read now with well exclamation point paradoxical? Anybody at all? Save an old man his voice. Well, paradoxical, not to say free and easy, as this little apo apology may seem, it is nevertheless precisely what it is at, what at issue in the reality of analysis. It is not enough that the analyst should support this function of Theresius. Theresius. He must, he, he must also, as Apollinary, uh, tell us, have breast. I mean that 
the operation and the manipulation of the transference are to be regulated in a way that maintains a distance between the point at which the subject sees himself as lovable and the other point where the subject can see himself caused as a lack of by A and where A fills the gap constituted by the inaugural division of the subject. Okay, this is terrific. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna save this little one here and see if we can get a bigger circle because what Lacan is tracing out here is our interior uh, circle here. And in order to get at that, it might be helpful to have a slightly bigger one, a bigger diagram for us to look at. So our circle would look something like, let's make this thing as big as we can. And you can just pretend that it's a circle. Now, even this isn't going to be adequate for our purposes. Because the center point of that circle, the point of transference, should be right in the middle of this thing. And there should be a line that comes down. And then we've got our two halves. I'll let your minds go with this as you like. Notice how I'm not dotting the line. And then our circle would come out about something like this. Imagine the transference being right about in the middle. What Lacan is suggesting here is that there's a certain type of love that is happening out here at the level of identification. Now, the big I here, anytime something's capitalized in Lacan, it means it's symbolic, not imaginary. The identification here is not specular. This is not little I, little a of the specular image. This is the prop. This is the support for how we like to narcissistically see ourselves as lovable or not. And you know, if it's narcissistic, obviously it's in a non-lovable way. At issue here is not the ideal ego, but the ego ideal. The identification that the analyzand is trying to forge inadvertently or otherwise with the analyst is a symbolic identification where they can be the placeholder for an ego ideal. And ideally this would lead to and allow for a kind of narcissistic love of oneself by and in terms of some other person. This would be the point at which on 270, the subject can finally see him or herself as lovable, but only from the optics of an identification with some other omniscient being. This being in question, by the way, was already given to us in the graph of desire. This is the whole big other, and the type of omniscience that they would be demonstrating would be that of always having an answer, signifieds according to the big other. That's what we would be identifying with if we were to take this particular pathway from demand, dropping down to the point of transference, embracing identification, and coming back again to encounter demand. What we're working with here is the first pathway 
and I would suggest a maladaptive one of identification that is at work here in this diagram, this interior eight. Now, the transference here, as we've discussed in our previous lectures, is a closing up of the unconscious. You'll recall when we were dealing with repression and the return of the repressed at the level of the symptom, these looked, as one of you pointed out, like anuses, openings, these slits that Lacan talks about, these temporal pulsations where something opens up. Transference is productive for Lacan because although it closes those openings, in so doing, it tells you where they are. Transference still shows you that there's something there, even if in so doing, it attempts to cover it up. This is what I read Lacan saying here and reiterating it on 267, that transference is a closing up of the unconscious. So what I would suggest here is that by putting transference as a point here in the middle of this big circle, I would think of this as a kind of closing of an opening so that it's finally closed. Let's keep reading about this. Where were we? 270? Ah, yes. On the other side of identification, let's not forget, there will be desire. And what the ego ideal symbolized here, read your graph of desire, does to support the ideal ego, desire is going to do here by calling our attention not to the little imaginary A, but to Objea. That's what he's doing here in the middle of 270. I mean that the operation and manipulation of the transference are to be regulated in a way that maintains a distance between the point at which the subject sees himself as lovable, that's out here, the level of identification, and the point, the other point where the subject sees himself caused as a lack by A, and where A fills the gap constituted by the inaugural division of the subject. So there's some kind of a maximal distance that is maintained between these two points. And what I'd suggest here is that the regressive cycle of demand and desire, where anxiety always steps in as desire verges on jouissance, is symbolized here by the teal arrows. Notice it does not take the path of desire. It comes down the slope of transference, arrives here, and then looks for that identification with the analyst and goes right back to the initial line of demand. Rest of 270, there's a little bit on the gaze. I know some of you are pretty fascinated by this stuff. Get after it, because here's one that can't be swallowed. And then the internal eight pops up. And on 271, we get the diagram itself. Now you can see the labeling here. There's the line of demand. There's the line of identification. There's the point of transference and there's desire. Now what I wanna see is what we can do with this because the pathway we've got in front of us, that of identification is just one through this internal eight. 
the next paragraph, expect it's going to crack some things open. Bottom of 271. The paragraph begins in effect. And we read these paragraphs together because I think they're important. Even if you've read them before, pay attention to where we're at. In effect, by the very work that leads the subject while telling himself an analysis to orient what he says in the direction of the resistance of the transference of deception, deception of love as well as aggression, that's this arc of identification, that's deceptive. Deceptive towards oneself in particular. Something like a closing up occurs and its value is marked in the very form of this spiral developing toward a center. So I also want you to see here in this interior eight that what we also see happening is a kind of spiral that is moving toward a center. It's here in Lacan, I'm not making it up. What I have depicted here by means of the rim comes back on the plane constituted by the locus of the other from the place where the subject, realizing himself in his speech, is instituted at the level of the subject who is supposed to know. There's that demanding other that we all fantasize about, the other with all the answers, if we could just get them on the phone. And here's where it gets good. Any conception of analysis that is articulated innocently or not, God only knows, to defining the end of analysis as identification with the analyst, by that very fact, makes an admission of its limits. Any analysis that one teaches as having to be terminated by identification with the analyst reveals, by the same token, that its true motive force is elided. There is a beyond to this identification. And this beyond is defined by the relation and the distance between the objet petit a to the idealizing capital I of identification. That's our yellow dotted line here. So here Lacan is now inviting us to see a different pathway through the interior eight. And I wanna be really clear about this. <clears throat> the subject supposed to know the assumption, imaginary or otherwise, that the analyst knows all the answers and can heal you, in turn begets an identification with the analyst at the level of their desire. What do you want from me? You're not giving me the answers, but what do you want from me? Opens the door to this identification. What can I do to make myself lovable? That, for Lacan, is a trap. And you can see this trap where the imaginary identification with the analyst comes back and runs headlong into the cycle of demand that produced it in the first place. It is not a productive turn through this. You can see, however, that if you follow demand to the point of transference, and instead turn counterclockwise, now you don't hit demand head on, but you catch it at its source.
Let's see what we can do with this. There's lots of good stuff on the gaze, hypnosis, but for our purposes, where time is short, 273 is where we pick up. More or less in the middle of the page, where he talks about the fundamental mainspring of the analytic operation. The fundamental mainspring of the analytic operation is the maintenance of the distance between the I, identification, and the A. So here again, notice the yellow dotted line. It's the maintenance of that distance that allows for something like a psychoanalysis to occur. And it's the reason why psychoanalysis ain't hypnosis. In order to give you the form, formula reference points, I will say, if the transference is that which separates demand from the drive, the analyst's desire is what brings it back. So here you can see us moving from an imaginary projection of omniscience and omnipotence onto the big other, such that they could issue demands if they would just do it. We're now shifting to that second phase where it's not the demands of the other, but the desire of the other that catches our interest. It's the desire of the analyst that brings demand and the drive back together again. And in this way, it isolates the A. So notice I've put the D and the A on the other side of the I. Places it at the greatest possible distance. That's that yellow dashed line from the I that he, the analyst is called upon by the subject to embody. And who is the I again? This again is a subject supposed to know in the Lacanian terms. That's who the analyzand hopes the analyst will be for them. It is from this idealization of an omniscient, omnipotent analyst that the analyst has to fall in order to be the support of the separating A. There's that term, separation the separating A, insofar as his desire allows him in an upside down hypnosis to embody the hypnotized patient. For our purposes, what I wanna emphasize is the analyst that falls. The analyst that falls is not this depiction of the analyst in the graph of desire as a whole big other who has all the signifieds, all the meanings, all the answers in tune. This, the falling analyst, is elsewhere on the graph of desire. It's up here. Not a full other with all the answers, but a signal of the big other as lacking. This is the fall here. The analyst needs to show the analyzand that they don't have all the answers, that they are not the subject supposed to know. Now, if you've got ears to hear what I'm saying here, and you've studied the graph of desire, whether with me or someone else, remember this part of the graph of desire. Desire comes out here. Here's fantasy. 
And at fantasy, the subject has two choices. You can turn south, at which point you encounter a demanding other, here symbolized by the eye. You can turn north, at which point you see a signal of the barred other. What we're doing here is we're taking this upper section of the graph of desire and showing you how it's being played out here. The traversing of the fundamental fantasy means turning right at fantasy, not turning left. The regressive circuit of demand that you see here symbolized by the teal arrows is a circuit of from desire to fantasy to this arc of big otherness where all the answers are there, back up to desire and around and around and around again. This is a regressive circuit of demand. Now what happens is eventually at the bottom barrel of this moment, the big other finally tells you what they really want, which is show me you're castrated, show me your crack and all the ways that we talked about this while reading Seminar 10. The production there is one of anxiety in that bottom barrel of demand where this cycle finally peters out, if you will. And what you wind up with is the very thing that the subject is terrified to encounter, which is not a big other who is full, omnipotent, an angry God, but a big other who is lacking, who feels weak, who seems insecure. In other words, a big other whom you cannot count on because they are unruly, they are unpredictable. If you grew up with one of these parents, you know exactly the experience of anxiety I'm talking about. This is the child who knows that their parents cannot be counted upon because all too often they are confronted with signifiers of the fact that their parents are not whole gods, but partial, sexualized, desirous beings. Hence the image of that praying mantis at the start of seminar 10. You're there on the branch and a female praying mantis comes up to you looks you dead in the eye, but don't forget, you can't see your reflection in hers. And you know that if she's horny, you're about to be fuck killed. But if she's not, you might just live this. Worse yet, you don't even know whether you are her type. The mask you are wearing could be that of a female praying mantis, in which case, even if she's horny, you're not gonna get fucked or killed. But if you're wearing that male mask and she's horny, you're gonna get fuck killed. Anxiety is not knowing what you are for the desire of a big other. And don't forget, the female praying mantis is quite a bit larger than the male. That's anxiety. You're caught up in a desire that is bigger than you, beyond your capacity, and that is overwhelming. It encompasses you. It envelops you the way that of a helicopter parent might envelop you. The problem with that is that it leaves no space for you. You're completely, notice my gesture, overwhelmed by the desire of another person. Anxiety is what results from this lacking lack, 
where the lack atop which you would build a sense of your own desire has been taken from you. And now the only lack in the room is that of the unruly drunk parent in the corner who reaches for their belt and you don't know if it's gonna come across the table to smack you or simply allow them to relax a little bit more into their stupor. Not knowing what you are for the desire of the other is the object cause of anxiety. And it's what the subject avoids when they move into these regressive circuits of demand. I know you know all the answers. Just tell me what it is you want me to do. What do you want me to do? Anything is better than hearing the truth, which is, I don't know what I want you to do. I don't know what I want generally. I'm fucked up. That's terrifying to the kid. And it's also terrifying to the subject when the analyst whom you're paying $300 an hour tells you they don't know. What the fuck are you talking about you don't know? At 300 bucks an hour, you better know something. The discourse of the analyst always has knowledge hidden. Note the discourse of the analyst in seminar 17. You'll see what I mean. So here we were on page 273. The train goes on. The next paragraph is fine. The crossing of the plane of identification is possible. That's the cream colored arrows that you can see moving through from transference up. Anyone who has lived through the analytic experience with me to the end of the training analysis knows what I am saying is true. At this point, all Lacan is saying is that the traversing of the fundamental fantasy that we've been discussing is something that analysts who train with him can accomplish and have. And now we get to the good stuff again. It is beyond the function of the little a that the curve closes back upon itself at a point where nothing is ever said as to the outcome of analysis. That is after the mapping of the subject in relation to the A, the experience of the fundamental fantasy becomes the drive. Now, how would you map this out? Well, quite simply, if you have this fantasy of the big other as all knowing and so forth, you are gonna find yourself in the field of fantasy. The mapping of fantasy, the subject in relation to little a, notice how it has the exact same shape in the mathem for the drive, except instead of little a, you now have the big D demand of the other, but the shape is the same. To traverse the fundamental fantasy is to drop this little a and replace it with a big D in some sense. That's what we're after here. After the mapping of the subject in relation to A, the experience of the fundamental fantasy becomes the drive. What then does he who has passed through the experience of this opaque relation to the origin to the drive become? How can a subject who has traversed the radical fantasy experience the drive? This is the beyond of analysis and has never been approached. 
The reason why seminar 11 is profound is right here. At the very end, Lacan arrives at the beyond of analysis, a beyond of analysis that has never been approached. What we are doing is trying to approach that beyond. The tradition that extends from Lacan to Miller to Fink is about approaching that beyond. There's just not a lot in Lacan to discuss around this point. And that's what he's trying to say. The reason why the drive is the fourth fundamental concept of psychoanalysis is because it marks the beyond of the fundamental fantasy. And it has never been approached. Up to now, it has been approachable only at the level of the analyst. Inasmuch as it would be required of him to have specifically traversed the cycle of the analytic experience in its totality. So this passage from demand to the downward slope of transference up through desire and the mapping of little a all the way up to this traversing of the point of identification, the topmost point of this formula into the drive. Lacan says analysts can do this shit. It's part of their training, but good luck trying to get a patient to do this. I think we can be more hopeful. There is only one kind of psychoanalysis, the training analysis, which means a psychoanalysis that has looped this loop to its end. There is, in effect, no other way of accounting for the term durcharbeiten, working through in the German. It means working through of the necessity of elaboration, except to conceive how the loop must be run through more than once. I will not deal with this here because it introduces new difficulties and because I cannot say everything since I am dealing here only with the fundamentals of psychoanalysis. The important part about this paragraph is that even if you're a badass psychoanalyst, you will have worked this loop multiple times from demand up to the point of identification down to transference where you have this opportunity make the good decision come on out find the drive and look where you are this is the loop and you have to work this multiple times. This is what's at stake in the interior eight, is showing you the pathway that traps and the pathway that frees. The pathway of identification is a trap for analysis and analysands. The pathway of the drive is a liberating one for analysts, and hopefully for analysands too. The schema that I leave you as a guide both to experience and to reading shows you that the transference operates in the direction of bringing demand back to identification. 
It is as much as the analysts desire, which remains an X. Think X factor, an enigma. It is in as much as the analyst's desire, which remains an X, tends in a direction that is the exact opposite of identification. Remember how I put this. Analysis cannot end with the analyzand identifying with the analyzand. The job of analysis is for the analyzand's desire, or for the analyst's desire to remain an enigma such that it is unidentifiable. It moves in the exact opposite direction of identification. It's here that the crossing of the plane of identification is possible. That is this dot right here. The plane of identification can be crossed right here because the analyst's desire moves in the opposite direction of identification. Through the mediation of the separation of the subject and experience. The experience of the subject is thus brought back to the plane at which, from the reality of the unconscious, the drive may be made present. And that is what we're going to end on, is this drive, if and when it can be made present. One more time. Out here in the field of demand, you've got the big other. You've got the subject supposed to know. And the drive and little a, they are subjacent to this. They're underneath all this. The arc comes around here and you have the threat of transference, the opportunity for transference the resource, the embarrassment that is transference. And then you have this X factor, the analyst desire that can be pursued, mapped in a way that produces a different mapping than that of fantasy. By maximizing the distance between the idealizing ego ideal and the objet a, the support structure of what we need for our specular image and that which is occluded by this, we can get at something else. This really is the fundamental mainspring of analytic operation, according to Lacan. It's right here in the separation of these two elements, the maximum distance between them. The drive at the end of this process is where the fundamental fantasy would be traversed. The fantasy that everybody else knows the, the meaning of the life and you do not. Got to run the loop several times, Lacan tells us. But here's what's at stake here. The pathway of identification culminates, as we, as we said, in a kind of narcissistic love where you can love yourself only by and in terms of somebody else. You become lovable only in so far as they tell you. The drive though, opens the door for a different kind of love, not narcissistic love, but the final sentence 
of this seminar on page 276, limitless love. Notice how Lacan puts this. There, and what I would suggest here is there meaning at the level of the drive, there only may the signification of a limitless love emerge. Not narcissistic love of identification, but a limitless love because it is outside the limits of the law where alone it may live. The two key words in the final sentence here are life and love. How to live and love outside the limits of the law. That's what the drive answers for us. The drive is the answer to the question of how is it possible to live and love outside the law? Not that laws don't exist, but that you operate, you live and you love unimpeded by them. It's important that the last word here is also live because the big breakthrough insight in the middle section of this book is the type of life that gets stripped from us when we enter the bipolar straits of sexuality. It's really worth moving on this stuff. That real lack where pure, undivided, indestructible, eternal life, immortal life even, for those of you that read or rent, gets stripped, subtracted, barred. The drive allows for the recovery and restoration of that earliest loss. And it is a loss of life. I'm not talking about death. Quite the opposite, in fact. This is what puts us on the straits of reproduction. But of course, as individuals, we must die for the species to live. So also death is in the mix here. Sexuality and death are really closely allied themes, as we saw in our last lecture. Here, though, at the end of Seminar 11, it's not death that captures our attention. It's life. The key question is, what type of a life does the drive allow? We know that the love that it allows is limitless to some extent. But what kind of a life does this allow? Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.